Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. It's a pleasure to be back. Our guest this week on the show, uh, he's back for the first time uh, since last November. Uh, It's Head of Global Markets Strategy at Westpac, Rob Rennie. Rob, great to have you back. Great to be back. Thanks very much. Now, never let it be said that I don't prepare for these podcasts because I uh, went through and listened to the last show we did last year. um, And let me just call out a couple of little things that we talked about, which were really interesting and has me very excited about what we're going to get into uh, today, right? So it was last November. We were interested in the fact that property prices uh, in Sydney had just started to fall. Uh, we were talking about how MacroPro had just been working. The RBA had been on hold for 14 meetings. Uh, D- David uh, observed that there was not likely to be some sort of major correction in the property mar- market unless there was a global shock. Um, we talked about the entry of Amazon, and Rob, you talked about how likely this was uh, this would see some deferred purchasing by consumers. Um, and lo and behold, retail went on to have a very, very soft patch over the following months, but in recent uh, months it's been coming back. Uh, Rob, you also s- talked about interest rates, and uh, you apologised for being dull about it, but you said, <laughs> you said we see rates being on hold uh, 2017, 2018, and 2019, uh, which now looks like, from that perspective, that is basically where the market is, uh, and also where, where pretty much everybody is sort of agreed now. Um, and uh, I think one of the specific things as well that you said, I know you've got a deep expertise and uh, follow commodity uh, demand globally very closely, uh, but you talked in detail about um, the iron ore market. Um, and. Uh, we actually had a chuckle on the show about how the iron ore price uh, had gone up because it had been falling for so long. But Rob said that, uh, you said that looking into 2018, you saw iron ore in the low to mid 60s and looked at the price today and it had a small pop, about 2.1% overnight and currently sitting at uh, $65.24. So uh, uh, I'm Every, certain- Everything's dull, basically. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. A stopped clock. <laughs> Um, so, Rob, part of your role is to look at uh, the implications um, for, uh, for Australian businesses, uh, you know, obviously the clients, um, but to analyse in, in a deep way what's going on in the world uh, and, and look forward to the implications of those. And I'm delighted, I uh, appreciate you coming on the show and taking the time because um, we're going to take a really deep dive into this um, trade uh, situation that the world has now found itself in. So the headlines are all obviously uh, Trump and China, mm. and particularly with uh, the um, escalation that we've seen in, in recent weeks. Uh, but uh, it's not confined to that. Yes. The Trump administration uh, has now trade disputes with Mexico, Canada, and the European Union, uh, as well as China. Uh, China is obviously where the main game is at. Um, so uh, I thought it would be great to. Um, Let's get a really detailed look at how this is all happening, what the mechanisms are, uh, and how it plays out. Because there are likely to be real implications for real businesses out there uh, as these tariffs start to take force. Uh, and it looks like uh, at the moment um, that that is what is going to happen. Those tariffs will drop in. So um, specifics, right? Um, we've got two different types of tariffs. Yep. 
Section 232 and the 301, they're two different bits of legislation. Uh, maybe you can start with those. Yeah, look, and I, I think that's a very fair point to make is that it kind of feels like a bit of a random process. You know, we've got 232s, we've got 301s, we've also got 122s. You get WTOs, we get GATs. Um, you know, we've got um, yeah, U.S. Trade Representative. We get the Commerce Department. You know, every day, and even this week, uh, we've seen further significant developments in both those um, uh, those lenses. So it feels like a sort of a random process. And I guess the point that I would make here is that it's not a random process. It's a very prescribed process. Remember that Trump was elected on the idea that he was going to rip up the script. He was going to tear up trade ag- agreements. He was potentially going to pull out of WTO, he was going to impose 45% tariffs on on China, etc. Well, to be honest, he's kind of doing what he's saying, but the way that he's doing it is unprecedented. So you mentioned 232s and 301s. Um, 232 is, um, uh, 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 well, Section 232 is the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. Go back to 1962 and think about what was happening then, Bay of Pigs, Cold War, um, uh, advisors in Vietnam, the numbers were definitely beginning to creep up. So we're really talking about a situation where you were intensely concerned about national security as an issue, remembering um, that, uh, you know, under the Constitution, it is the Senate that has powers over uh, trade and tariffs. But increasingly through the, the, the 60s, so the 62 Trade Expansion Act and then the 74 um, Trade Act essentially gave the president very, very, very significant powers to essentially do what he wants to do. And 232 is a classic example of that. It basically, it reads, he shall take such action for such time as he deems necessary so that imports do not threaten the national security. Now, there's been 16 studies that I've found, if you go onto the uh, Commerce uh, Department website, you'll see those 16 studies, all of the material surrounding them um, uh, uh, around the process. Um, and we're looking at things like crude oil um, imports, you know, during that period in the 70s, 80s, etc., where you were seeing tremendous swings in crude oil prices. They sat, they looked at it, and they basically decided that it was not, did not have an impact on national security. No president has ever used Section 232 of the 62 Trade Expansion Act, i.e. national security, you just don't do it. Nixon in 71, when we uh, uh, when they came out of uh, Bretton Woods, they announced a 10% tariff on everything. He cited 232, but it was later um, shifted towards trading with the Enemy Act. Okay, It's never been used before. Trump rips up the script. And the first thing that he does in April, May of last year is, and again, this is an important point, we've got to go back to April, May of last year, he announces an investigation into steel and uh, aluminium imports on the basis that it is uh, an issue for national security. He lets the defense secretary know, Mattis, so the official process is is in train. He has public hearings. Um, Ross... Uh, Wilbur Ross uh, issued um, his judgment in February of, of uh, this year. And this, you know, when you think about Ross and the person as, as he, as Commerce Secretary, drives um, 
uh, the US's trade stance. He recommended either, I think from memory, it was a 26% tariff on all steel imports from everybody and a step down in terms of quotas to 76% of 2017 levels for everybody. Or if we just go for the big 12, you go 46 or 48% on those guys and the, uh, the quota as well. So acutely aggressive. This is the advice that Trump takes. He doesn't take the full advice. He goes 25 on um, steel and 10 on uh, aluminium. But the advice that he is getting is it's we've got to go hard. We've got to go very, very hard. So that's the two, three, two. And I, I sort of think of four waves. Wave one was the steel and aluminium. Um, uh, wave four is the auto. And again, auto parts and uh, auto imports is section 232 that uh, we have hearings going on today tomorrow go on to the um, uh, commerce department website there's 2637 individual inputs many of those from uh from governments uh one of the ones that i read over the weekend is from when you say inputs they're submissions to the hearings. they're submissions to the hearing so this is the, the net is cast far and wide you know tell us um, whether you think uh, auto imports and, you know, difficult with a straight face to argue that auto imports, one of the issues that the um, EU paper actually does bring up is production of Humvees, uh, you know, and again, that's potentially, that's a, that's a point you've got to raise. Um, but, um, uh, you know, significant amount of work. So again, sort of when we think about this seemingly random process, what we have to remember is uh, it's about a year from the beginning of the process until it all wraps up and the president does or does not execute tariffs. So that if the hearings are currently taking place today, tomorrow, we're not going to hear anything until Q1 next year. Personally, I think it's too late. So that's sort of wave one and wave four, two, three, two. Wave two and three that we're currently in at the moment is um, section 301. So that's where, um, uh, uh, that's unfair trade practices. That's the US trade representative that basically drives that lighthizer. An interesting point, I was discussing it with a client this morning. He was deputy um, USTR 8385 under Reagan. So go back to the 80s, look at the training that he's had. Um, over the weekend, I was sort of doing a bit of work on sort of trade and, and um, uh, sort of trade wars. Back in 2010-2011, um, Lighthizer presented a paper, and it was basically on the 10 years of China WTO. And the language, I mean, anyone that's interested in this, go back and read that paper, because it tells you very much about the advice, because that's what the US trade representative's role is. The role came out of <clears throat> uh, 62 Trade Expansion Act, that's why it was created. And it helps the US president to shape his policy. And also it takes the role of negotiating trade agreements, et cetera, and monitoring them. Um, that paper basically says that none of the things that were f uh, promised from China, WTO, have been delivered. If anything, the reverse. We need to become more inventive in terms of the, uh, the policy that, um, uh, that we develop. Um, and importantly, there's one paragraph where he says there's nothing that China can do that will offset the benefits of tariffs. So we have the guy that's in charge of shaping Trump's policy that uses the words, the benefits of tariffs. That tells you a lot about how where policy is headed. Uh, so it was his office uh, that basically drove the, um, uh, the, 30, um, uh, the 301s. Um, and, uh, you know, we've had the 36 billion or 34 billion 
The additional 16 billion, the hearings for them are next week. So that's another important date to, uh, to keep an eye on and allowing for a couple of weeks after that, early August, we'll get the 16, uh, the additional 16 billion of tariffs. Which will start applying. Which yeah, will start yeah. applying straight away. But then the 200 billion, which was in retaliation to China's retaliation for retaliation against the original 50 billion, the hearings of, for them uh, take place mid-August. So probably September, depending on the, avi- the advice that Trump gets and whether he takes that advice, we're set for you know, potentially a significant escalation, albeit at a lower tariff rate, 25, 10% versus 25. But you know, there is the potential for some products, given that it captures a lot of capital goods, intermediate goods, it's about sort of 76% would be um, uh, capital intermediate goods. There is a risk that some of the, the steel and aluminium that's been tied up under Section 232 uh, tariffs is also going to be tied up with 301. So you could have a situation where we get double um, uh, taxation right. uh, as you know as a result of it. So, so these machine parts uh, involve steel. So this this the steel tariff applies, and then the the parts. Yes, so the goods. The yes. goods. The yeah. goods the tariff applies. Come in. Right, and they would have worked this out in in great detail. Yeah. Uh, the other so. big thing, sorry, the other big thing to keep an eye on here is um, uh, so so take, uh, section two three two, unlimited ability for the uh, president to do what he wants given national security. Section twenty two, I think, of uh, GATT allows uh, for tariffs. The, GATT, the general agreement on correct trade and tariffs uh, allows for section twenty one of GATT allows for tariffs uh, as a result of national security. Monday. Uh, the Commerce Department actually put a case against China, EU, etc., for the countervailing taxes that they put or tariffs that they put on as a result of the um, uh, steel and aluminium. In other words, uh, the US has the right because they declare national security, they can do what they want. And under WTO rules, unless you're claiming national security, you cannot. Right. So the irony really here is that the you know China EU and the other parties that put uh, a retaliatory yeah. ta- uh, tariffs in place under WTO rules are not allowed to do so because of their th- own domestic legislation doesn't have that trigger. Right. Correct. Yeah. So it shows you the power uh, of um, the um, you know the tools that that Trump is using that previous presidents have not, have decided not to use. And the gentleman's agreement within GATT WTO is you really don't go there. I mean, I can historically only find 15 situations of GATT and WTO where um, national security has been called, and that's it tends to be in a very real conflict situation. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it really is ripping up the script, um, and don't underestimate the potential power that Trump has if the U.S. administration uh, believes that trade wars are good and easy to win, uh, my sense is that they're you know they're relatively easy to win in a situation of economic strength. But look into next year, when the U.S. economy looks a bit softer, um, I'm less convinced. So I'm not sure that we will see auto tariffs appear because it really is scorched earth. A really important question is: you talk about you know a trade war is you know they're difficult to win or they, they, they might be easy to win uh, if you're coming from a position of domestic economic strength. But what does a win constitute in a trade war? Yeah, look, and that's a, that, that's a great question because you get the sense that um, the US administration doesn't really know what it wants here. 
Yeah, look, I do think that um, you know there's a very keen sense within this, you know, Sir Wilbur Ross, uh, Lighthizer, Trump, uh, and his various advisors that um, you know there's a difference between free trade and fair trade, um, and that the U.S. economy um, really has been you know has been left behind. Um, a, so, you know, the idea that Lighthizer comes in and basically su suggests that we have to become much more aggressive, we have to become much more inventive to level the playing fields. I genuinely think that the current administration thinks that uh, it, it, we need tariffs because it will change behaviours because we've tried to engage with China. 10 years plus 16 years of WTO membership, clearly nothing has happened there. We've tried it in the past. I mean, the outcome, the, the, the attempts in previous administrations were very, very different. You know, I, I'm kind of old enough to remember, um, uh, you know, Mickey Cantor as the US, US trade representative uh, in the early 90s under Clinton, slapped 100% tariff on uh, Japanese um, auto markets. Now, what was that designed to do? 100% tariff, you've got no point to give in to that situation. This situation is very different. Uh, it, it, appear, it appears to me, looking at it from, from afar, that the US administration basically just wants to put tariffs in place. They've told the US electorate that they're going to do it. They're meeting that, um, that requirement to do so. They're, you know, they're executing on that policy. Sure, they're using um, inventive ways to go about it, but if you've got the tools to do it, um, go ahead. So a, a big question here is, um, you know, Trump has talked an awful lot about we've got this huge trade deficit with China. So you restore the restore the trade balance between the two countries, but then what? Yeah, look, I mean, we all, I mean, economic theory one hundred and one. You're putting in place trade barriers um, is not going to improve the, the trade situation. You've got to go back to the fundamental drivers here. We've got a savings investment imbalance within the US, uh, and we've just announced an enormous fiscal stimulus that, you know, given that we've exported a lot of the production of capital goods offshore, uh, and we're suddenly throwing a lot of money at and encouraging, encouraging businesses to invest, what are you going to do? You're going to import a lot of the capital goods that you've offshored. So it's not going to see an improvement in, the, um, uh, in the, the trade situation. If anything, you know, as a result of the J-curves involved in, um, in trade disputes, it's going to make it worse. So I'm not sure that it's really about improving the, um, the trade situation right here, right now. It's about changing um, the, the difference between free and fair trade. Um, and if that, in a, in a situation, remember we'll get um, Q3, first snap of uh, Q2 GDP uh, next week in the US. Um, you know, we're looking at um, potentially a forehandle. It's easy to do what you're doing just now when you've got super strong economic growth. And, you know, on the basis of the, the, the fiscal policy that we saw, you've got super strong growth in the US Q2, Q3. Mm. So, okay, let me wind this back, though, a little bit. So long game, which I think is unclear. Yeah. Um, there is an important backdrop to all of this, which is um, America's economic supremacy that has been in place for almost a century uh, is um, under threat from a rapidly rising China that has 
uh, and a lot of America's uh, dominance and global leadership was based on its technology, uh, you know, skilled workforce, um, open, various levels of open trade, great exports, you know, huge um, defense industry, you know, projection of power, all of that kind of thing. But then also this technological supremacy, if you like, which is now yes. uh, uh, being challenged by uh, by China. So um, there is a there is a reality, and I uh, there's a reality that that is under threat in terms of. You know the superconductors, supercomputers, uh, artificial intelligence platforms that are going to, from where we sit now, they look like they will be the types of technological products that will drive the next. Um, there will China be a platform. Yeah, uh, which is where Xi is trying to take things, make sure that um, China is a leader in those kind of sectors yeah. uh, within the next seven years. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, but there's. The IP question, I think, which is something that underlines a lot of this, uh, which is the, you know, uh, American companies uh, and I suppose the American establishment being concerned that China has not uh, respected um, the, if you like, the ground rules for uh, intellectual property uh, distribution, um, basically, you know, b believing that there's copyright theft and uh, IP yeah. theft going on. Um, now, this is a really, really difficult question, isn't it? Because um, where does the IP uh, protection fit into all of this? Because to me, if they want to be effective in trying to uh, contain the technological rise of China and its building advantages in certain areas, that this is kind of an area that needs to be tackled. So where yeah. does it fit in? Yeah, look, uh, look difficult area. Uh, and obviously, I mean, you know, uh, Made in China 2025, it's pretty obvious, you know, where Xi is headed here. Um, and I suspect that if you're trying to use um, 301, which is sort of unfair trade practices to try and address this, it's not the right way to go. Look, I mean, to be honest here, it, it's really bilateral versus multilateral. Um, uh, TPP um, spent a lot of time focusing on IP and protecting IP, and we've kind of ripped up the script there. Um, now, you know, again, uh, China joined WTO um, to December 2001. You know, here we are 16, 17 years later, you know, and we're still debating the extent to which um, uh, IP is protected or not. So it's difficult to argue that um, WTO and those forums, you know, has a lot of su success in addressing these issues. But the better way to address this, rather than using these very blunt instruments, and 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 significant instruments. I mean, once you tax, once you tariff 250 billion of imports. Uh, you know, you are you've gone from capital goods, intermediate goods. You know, you're talking about phones, uh, you know, etc. The consumer ultimately is paying here, uh, whereas what we should be doing is addressing uh, IP and the other issues um, through uh, um, uh, trade agreements. You know, I think the U.S. is heading about this in the wrong way, but maybe. 
We just have to accept that under the Trump administration, um, things have clearly changed. And that, you know, that period that we've gone through where maybe we haven't been as aggressive as we should have been over trade, uh, we focused on uh, free rather than fair. Um, I think this is what they're trying to go to the, um, uh, the nub of. It's just whether we're going around uh, about it in the right way. So let's talk about the damage. Yes. Um, so they are, that's, I suppose, the first part, which is here's what's happening. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the consequences. Um, we are, uh, you see all sorts of numbers floating around for, you know, where this, where the effects of this might start to be felt in what kinds of sectors, etc. What do you see? Yeah, look, and, and this is where it becomes... <laughs> Very difficult, uh, very difficult indeed, because, you know, I think in, in, in previous trade war situations, um, the, you know, the global sort of supply chain concept was very, very different. Um, you know, we now have parts, you know, a single auto has 25, 26,000 individual parts. Each one of those parts could be made, you know, under different circumstances in different countries and then transported back and forth. So trying to sort of capture the impact of all-out trade war now versus previous trade wars, I think it's very different, uh, uh, difficult. Um, you know, there's a set of models that you use in this situation, uh, CGE, Computable General Equilibrium Model, which is basically just a massive sort of set of input-output tables, huge amount of uh, data, um, you know, intense amount of um, uh, formula that are basically designed to calculate changes in price, changes in demand within different economies, and then how those individual economies react with each other. Uh, the P Peterson Institute has, has uh, pro uh, produced some work um, on uh, one of those. They basically met, made the argument that, um, and again, going back to that EU paper, um, I think 26% of autos produced in the US are produced by European companies. About 60% of those autos that are produced in the US by European companies are exported. So what happens to um, a, those local auto companies in a situation where the US raises tariffs and everyone else raises tariffs on US autos that are produced and then exported from the US? Well, you move offshore. And you can already see it happening. I mean, Harley potentially setting up in Europe, Tesla setting up in China. That's why you do it. So calculating a response in a situation where a company turned around and says, we've got a supply chain in place. Somebody's put a tariff that collapses that supply chain. I'm going to close the company and I'm going to move offshore because that's the most efficient way of carrying on doing what I'm doing. I don't have the critical mass within the US. If 26% of the autos are produced by European companies and 60% of those are exported, you don't have the critical mass within the US market. You shift to where the critical mass is. And this is the other thing is, this is not like the, the, um, the 90s where you had no access to the Japanese market. Mm. European uh, auto producers have a very, very, you know, go to Beijing. Every symbol that you see in a car, um, you know, either is VW or it's an Audi or something like that. So it's, you already have a very, very big market. Just move there. So yeah. coming up with a single number that says it's a massive negative, it's very difficult to do. The actual GDP impact, because companies will move, it will take three to six months. So it will take longer, depending on how efficient you are. 
Uh, it may take less, uh, depending on how efficient you are. But that production just suddenly or very quickly redistributes elsewhere. So the actual impact that it has on global growth is not particularly high. What it does do is it has a very quick in impact on investment. Uh, and you're already potentially beginning to see that. Uh, Powell's mentioned it. Um, the Minutes mentioned it. You know, just the idea that we're already beginning to see some signs of investment intentions, capex intentions, Starting plans. And it's kind of obvious in some of the regional Fed uh, surveys. But again, sort of coming back to that Peterson Institute, I think the numbers that they calculated was you lose about 650,000 auto workers over a one, two, three year period, because the US, you know, that big part of the US auto industry that was exporting, we've already talked about that, just goes, well, gone. You know, we don't need that big plant just north of the, uh, the Mexican border where the parts were coming in. We're out of here. You and know, there's our, also all of the jobs that those jobs support too. Well, that's where it's about 400,000 primary and then it's, you know, 200 yeah. plus secondary. And when we closed down our auto uh, plants here in Australia, the impact that it had on the parts market, you could see it very, very, you know, very quickly coming through. Yeah. So the auto, but also the, you know, the dealerships, the uh, the windscreen wipers, you know, the uh, rear view mirrors, all of those guys that make those parts locally, they all just disappear as well. So it actually has a very quick impact on investment. It has a reasonably big impact on trade, but it doesn't necessarily have a particularly large impact um, on, uh, on growth. Is, are we seeing any signs of it happening just now? Look, I spend a tremendous amount of time and it's really sort of born of the fact that I, you know, I, you know people joke, I count ships <clears throat> in terms of sort of coal, iron ore and LNG exports. I got really excited in, in March, same time as the, um, uh, the steel and aluminium tariffs come in. Trade dropped quite noticeably, um, but it's since rebounded um, and I track container traffic uh, and that's a great way to do it. But at, at the moment, there's not really any sign. If anything, given that we know uh, that there's a potential for another 200 billion of tariffs, I just wonder where, whether we're in for a period where there's uh, uh, you know, more trade taking place, a lot more stuff being chucked into containers now. Front-ended. Front ending. Mm. Um, so, you know, normally the data for June begins. Think of the, the seasonality that we have in this data. Um, you know, June, relatively quiet. July, it picks up. August, September, that's the period where if you're going to ship some new product to the US for the obvious season, you got to get it in, into a container really through um, uh, July, August. And if we're talking about that, the potential for uh, the hearings on the additional 200 um, in August with potentially seeing tariffs in September front loaded. If anything, we could actually see some, um, you know, some, some better data coming through. Uh, I think one of the things that I've seen just in terms of real shipments, um, We've seen in recent weeks the soybean, yes. global soybean market uh, going a bit haywire. Yeah. So China's proposing uh, the tariffs on U.S. exports of soybeans, which, um, as uh, I understand it, very important to yep. um, for feeding uh, pigs, yeah. uh, which produces the pork, which um, is a, you know, High levels of pork consumption uh, are one of the features of the transformation of the, or much higher level of, of pork consumption is one of the features of the transformation of the Chinese economy over the last um, 30 years. Um, so there's got this huge demand for soybeans. Um, but what's happened has been 
U.S. soybean prices yep. have been plunging, yep. uh, <clears throat> and you see Brazilian Absolutely. soy, which is the other major provider, yeah. uh, have been soaring, and um, they've been really stocking up. So uh, great for the uh, Brazilian soybean farmers. Yep. But I think what's interesting about that is, and I think we've touched on this before on the show, but um, China being very specific uh, in terms of what it's targeting because the soybean growing areas in the United States uh, are Trump Absolutely. voting areas. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they, um, uh, they, these guys did not come down in the last shower and they know yep. uh, where they are going to target these, uh, these tariffs uh, in a way that is going to hurt those producers. So politically, that becomes, we're now heading into this. So, you know, you're heading into this period where uh, in just a matter of weeks, the campaign period p- kicks off for the um, U.S. midterms, yep. uh, an enormous test test of the public mood uh, in the United States yep. and um, going to be very, very interesting to watch all of that unfold um, as we head into November. Um, but, uh, with you know, we're starting to see real dollar impacts on industry in the United States already. Yes. Uh, And this is only getting started. And to your point from earlier, there's quite a long way for this to play out and to see the continuing impacts start to stack up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, look, it's going to be a a fascinating um, uh, sort of area. Can I just ask you one quick thing? Um, Where in markets, in global financial markets, will you be looking for... The yeah, investment community's judgment of how this is playing out. Yeah, look, I think that's a good question. And to be perfectly honest, I think the drop that we had in copper prices, you know, five weeks ago, copper was 7,300 plus, you know, you're talking five-year highs. And that very much sort of spoke to that sort of, you know, synchronous global growth, you know, optimism, um, you know, the impact of uh, fiscal in the, uh, the US, et cetera. Then suddenly we start to realize that this this tariff, tit, you know, tit-for-tat tariff war is very much going to, um, uh, you know, primary goods. So it's it's the metals, et cetera, in the, uh, in the first instance. And then you have copper basically, what are we down, 17%, something like that in the last five weeks, 7,300 plus um, uh, down to uh, 6,200. That's a big move. Um, I'll call last night warning that um, uh, aluminium was having a, uh, an impact. There's a Midwest premium, um, uh, which is a measure of taking aluminium from port in the US and delivering it into where you're actually using it. Um, if I convert that into metric tons, it's about 500 US dollars a metric ton to guarantee delivery into the Midwest. That's double, more than double where it was um, a year wow. ago. Okay. And that's so even though aluminium prices have dropped and, you know, to your point, soybeans, you can really see it showing up in individual commodities. If you need the supply and you need it guaranteed in a situation where there is a tariff on it, nobody externally really wants to deliver aluminium into the U.S. unless they really have to. And if you are a U.S. Uh, uh, you know, user of aluminium, you're going to have to pay more for it as a result of these tariffs. So I think very quickly we've gone to the industrials, and that's been right. Um, you know, the industrial metals, the industrial stocks. The question is, you know, having had the the, the um, uh, steel aluminium, the 50 billion, do we go 200 billion where it becomes more consumer good? Do we go auto? 
in which case, you know, it is not simple for an auto company to shut down an established plant in um, Arizona in the US and move it to mainland China. Think of the approvals and the process and the costs involved in that. So it is an absolute cost to the, the, the auto company, the producer. It's going to be a, cons- a cost to the consumer as well. So it, it really, no good answer to a great question um, other than it kind of depends on what happens next. And the good thing, I know it's summer markets, there's nothing much going on, but through July, through August, ahead of liquidity coming back in September, ahead of the midterms, we're going to have a very crystal clear view one way or the other on how far Trump and the US administration is going to go on um, on this trade war. Very quickly, where would we expect to, when would we, would we know if they're going to press ahead with this auto uh, get more serious on the auto tariffs. Again, to the original point, you've got 2,000, what did I say, 634 submissions. I mean, I've read, to be honest, I took a random sample of two. Um, uh, so 2,632 to go. Um, the EU submission was 35 pages long. Um, the Swiss submission was um, less significant. I started reading the Korean submission and I kind of lost interest. Um, so somebody somewhere has got an awful lot of work to do. And then we've got to, I mean, we, we've really, 232 um, national security is not something that you would want to embark on lightly because, as we said before, it potentially has a material impact on auto workers, auto production in the US. Do you want to go there? It's not something that you consider likely. Last night, uh, there was another Section 232 on uranium. Um, So that 16 becomes 17. Um, The US is now studying whether uranium imports are national security issue. It's going to be Q2, Q1, Q2, uh, before we find out where we go there as well. But I think it is an important statement on the the fact that we've ripped up the script. And this is a completely different script that the um, US administration is is operating to. So this has been an absolutely fascinating... There's a couple of other things we want to talk about, and I want to get back to Australia too. But before we move on to that, um, just want to go back to the fact that this is not just... Oh, a trade war on China. Uh, there's also the EU, um, yes. Canada, and Mexico, um, probably lesser um, uh, in Canada and Mexico, um, but the European Union is involved too. So you've got between the United States, Europe, and China, you've got trade barriers starting to go up between the three biggest and most important economic blocks in the world. Uh, and uh, there is, we're in a process now where this could continually escalate. And yes. the Trump administration has been, as you've, I think, explained very clearly, shown its determination to keep pursuing this. Um, so it's not just confined to China. Uh, and uh, the, 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 next move, I think, particularly from the EU, um, becomes very interesting, doesn't it? Yeah. Look, remember, um, so you're right, you know, this is three or four-way um, negotiations. Donald Tusk was in Beijing yesterday or the day before for talks on reducing auto tariffs. 
um, you know, China has a Belt and Road Initiative, which is all about building um, land and maritime trading links between China through um, Asia into Europe as well. You know, an important point, I was looking at the data yesterday, if I track trade between China and all Belt and Road, it's running at about plus 15% year year. In fact, in May, which is the most recent piece of data that we got, it was an all-time high. So you've got China and um, the US at loggerheads raising tariffs against each other, but you've got China and um, you know, the, uh, the Belt and Road mass um, investing heavily. Now, you can argue that some of those projects are probably, um, there's another agenda going on here, and you know we've done that. We've, we've talked about that story, and I think there's a lot to be said for it. But at the end of the day, China is, is investing aggressively in opening up um, high-speed rail, high-speed shipping, opening up fresh routes. You know, there's a deep water port in Gwadar in Pakistan that opens up a new route that we've never had before and that production in western China rather than having to go all the way east to get to port and then go the long way round in theory um, it just goes down to uh, Pakistan rail link deep port bang off it goes new trade route uh, which is really about focus focused about getting um, uh, goods and services into uh, into Europe so it's not all bad news. Uh, Tusk going to uh, to China to discuss lowering tariffs, and the EU will have talks, I think, next week with the um, Trump administration on potentially doing that as well on autos as a way of potentially heading off the um, uh, the two, two three two. So there's a lot of discussions going on in the background, and it's not all bad. I believe the um, didn't the, the Japanese and the European Union sign a free trade agreement just this week, so it gives you a bit of indication of other parts of the world are opening up, whereas the US appears to be on a trajectory where I mean, a bit isolationist. So I just yes. find it interesting to go and watch what's going on because the risk that the rest of the move, the rest of the world will move on and uh, and and liberalise trade, whereas the US will go the exact opposite, and how that will go and impact their economy is. Now, in my opinion, it'll be very detrimental. I think it's a really interesting point because one of the things you can do in these situations is trade your way out of the damage that a tariff does. So, um, you know, um, let's take the, the U.S. soybean farmers, for example. Um, they are being hit by tariffs with China, right? So the way to for them to deal with that is is to find new buyers yes. um, and create new markets for themselves. Um, but in the case of Japan and the European Union, okay, well, we Japan may not be able to export um, or may have a bit of a problem exporting to um, to the United States or they may see some trouble coming down the track yep. there. Uh, instead, let's try and like make sure that we're you know getting stuff into Europe and sort yeah. of trade our way out of it there and I think when you look at this is where for me what's been happening with with China's currency um, as these tariffs have been um, uh, uh, approaching that the currency weakening now there's lots of people say you know Dave I'm sure you have um, a, a range of views on this and I'd be happy to hear them but it is advantageous for China to for its exports to be getting broadly more competitive yep. as the U.S. market starts to, as the, the shutters start to come up on on the U.S. market. Um, what is your take on that, uh, Dave, The um, that China currency weapon question? I think if they look at the uh, current account at the moment, I think uh, 
recently the, the actual current account surplus they were running has now turned into a deficit, which is probably a, a factor behind what we're seeing with the move in the currency. Um, also, there's been no real desire from uh, from Chinese policymakers this time to go and, and quell the, uh, the the depreciation like we saw back in uh, in 2015, 2016. Uh, yeah, so I, I realistically with the other UN, I just I'm not uh, I don't think that they are using it as a policy tool as yet. I think there's other mechanics behind it, but it is an option as you've uh, alluded to that they could go and, and use in the future. Uh, I mean, I could talk about this stuff all day. You talk about Chinese policy, and I think I read something this week. Um, you know, so for somebody pointing out, I think it was Wolf Richter at uh, Wall Street pointing out that. Um, one of the weapons that China has, uh, which is not something that a lot of other countries would have, would be the ability to use the media to whip up sentiment against. Right. So currently, you know, Chinese middle class loves a lot of American goods. Um, so the tariffs, you know, the prices of those can go up, but those prices are probably fairly elastic, particularly for wealthy Chinese. So um, you won't affect demand, demand too much if prices go up as the tariffs apply. But they can change that with some perception things that yeah. owning certain goods or certain companies, et cetera, is yeah. bad and or it's, you know, yeah. um, you know, and they can do, do that without, you know, it's it's not a complex process. For oh, them. You, you see it time and time again, like particularly in the financial markets, you know, the uh, with the A shares, uh, the Chinese uh, Shanghai Composite and the like being uh, sold off so aggressively earlier this year. Uh, if you look at uh, any of the other uh, state run media, particularly if you go and uh, go to the uh, the Chinese language and then get uh, Google Translate, there has been lots of commentary out there about the uh, the merits of you know, how great A shares are and the bottoms in and everything yeah. else. So yeah, there's there, there is. The media machine that they've got there can go and, as you say, whip up a frenzy about a certain thing. So maybe instead of talking about Harleys, they'll be talking about, you know, the desire to have Mercs or whatever else uh, is, is a better option. So, yeah, it's, it's something that they can go and do, which is not really readily available in many other countries yeah, around yeah, the world. Absolutely. I mean, two observations there. One, yeah, I was in Beijing in May of this year. And it's funny, um, I, you know, I had some downtime in between a couple of meetings. And, um, you know, naturally you pick up your phone and you go straight to Google and then you realize you can't get anything and you've got to download the Baidu app and you've got to go through there and then you've got to use Translate mm -hmm. because my, you know, local language is not that hot. Um, you know, and it really brings it home that, um, you know, we are talking about a media that is uh, intensely controlled if it needs to be. The other observation that I would make, I mean, exactly to your point, um, uh, Paul, is the fact that we've not actually seen an awful of, lot of this uh, backlash within the domestic media. We saw it you know, in, in um, Korean situations and Japanese situations, suddenly you had a tremendous backlash. It's not present. And I think that speaks to the idea that, um, you know, let's face it, you look at the data, you look at the credit numbers that we've had out of uh, China. May was well below, or well more than one standard deviation below the average sort of post-crisis. June picked up again a bit, but it was still one standard deviation below the average for the last, what's that, five or six years. Credit slowing within the GDP numbers, while the headline number didn't slow, you look into the detail, you look at things like industrial production, fixed asset investment, um, even though employment is slowing, consumption held up, therefore consumer is dipping into savings. It's really the government expenditure that is keeping things going. You know, we've t we've got a, a softer, for you know, we, we've got a lower forecast for um, GDP for this year than the, uh, the market on the basis of the fact that it is observable that things are slowing and fighting a trade war in that situation, you know, which may hit consumer sentiment, et cetera, uh, and potentially destabilize 
financial markets and the currency market at the same time is probably not something that you really want to go. So I think you can explain it that way, that you say it's probably unusual that we've not seen this machine beginning to say, don't buy US, buy somebody else, buy the local version of something. Um, and I think that speaks to the fact that fighting a massive trade war, and when, let's face it, the weapons that are being used against you are probably more powerful um, than you once understood them to be. And I think that's what we're finding out. You know, take a case to the WTO um, to um, uh, push against those uh, retaliatory tariffs. It, it emphasizes that um, Trump has a lot of the, uh, the cards here. I'm just not sure that you want to play those non-tariff cards right here, right now. Okay, um, I want to quickly cover off on two, super thing, two things really quickly. Um, one is the yield curve. Okay. Yep. So yes, predictor of recession, right? So yep. every, you know, every, I think all of our listeners would be familiar with this. Um, where the U.S. two-year, ten-year uh, yield cur curve inverts, um, a recession follows at some point within the next eighteen months or so. Um, we are very close. I think uh, the last time I looked is about twenty-five basis points. Um, so, uh, if the Fed continues to push up rates, essentially. What's going to happen is that two-year is going to catch up with that 10-year. You'll tip it over. And um, there is this question about whether it is causative or, um, you know, that is, might be the trigger. Um, so here's the question to both of you. Like, why would they do it and try to, you know, tempt fate? Um Rather than look, let's we know what the consequences of, of this in this in particular in terms of this particular financial indicator. Why would you push it in uh, and pr you know pursue that rate 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 hiking path and tip over the curb uh, the curve when you know what history tells you what happens after that? Well. The simple answer is they want to go and risk in an economy that's uh, that super overheats. You've got uh, fiscal stimulus uh, already been delivered, tax cuts and the like. Uh, the labour market is well below uh, natural levels. Uh, inflation is starting to go and pick up. Wage pressures are starting to pick up. So they're looking at that now. Um, also, you have the uh, the uncertainty about the QE impact on the lower end of uh, the longer end of the uh, of the yield curve as well. So whether that's generating the same signal as what it did in the past is another question. So this is essentially um, the Fed buying ten years or buying buying yeah. um, used longer to dated. used to be the Fed. The Fed's allowing their uh, their portfolio to run off their balance sheet gradually at the moment, very gradually. But you still have the likes of the BOJ and the ECB out there buying, uh, buying 50, years, 60 yeah. uh, US billion uh, of government bonds per month. That money goes somewhere, it goes into the treasury market. So there is some, there's undoubtedly some sort of impact how big it is. Uh, there's been lots of models that have been uh, written about and everything else, but no one can say with any certainty whether the signal being generated by that at the moment is actually signaling that you know, this flattening of the yield curve, is it as flat as what it would be in the non-QE era? And that's a bit of uncertainty. But the Fed is dictating policy of what they're seeing in the, in the next two years. And the next two years, if they don't go and gradually start tightening, it does run the risk that the economy gets so hot that you actually become uh, have an economy where inflationary pressures really, really start to go and heat up. And uh, that leads to the scenario where they have to hike aggressively and then what will follow next is almost undoubtedly a very, very steep downturn. So they don't want to do that. What do you think, Rob? 
Yeah, look, I find myself agreeing. Um, uh, to me, uh, and I think Bernanke yesterday was uh, was interesting. He's basically saying, you know, don't read too much into the uh, yield curve, and I absolutely agree. I was speaking at an event last week, and I said, don't read too much into the yield curve. Um, I also think that the Fed, on the basis of the, the dot plots, is actually forecasting an inversion of the curve. Mm. Um, you know, you basically got one and a half priced in through the, uh, the end of this year, um, you know, dot plots or another couple next year and one the year after. We've only got three further rate hikes full stop. We think the Fed's done, you know, two and five eights um, for two or three points. One, um, you know, fiscal stimulus uh, is very much here and now, Q2, Q3, uh, starts to erode through next year. Um, so we've got a, we've got a slowing economy. Um, at that sort of level, um, you are uh, positive from a real perspective, real positive, but you're also at or potentially through neutral as well. And so you're absolutely seeing policy tightening with the Fed uh, rolling off parts of its balance sheet. You know, uh, the um, uh, financial conditions are uh, tightening. But I think whenever I sit in front of an asset manager, and I spend a lot of time doing this, um, I, I find myself going to stock versus flow. Um, we in financial markets tend to think flow. You know, what are central banks doing now versus three months ago or, or, or six or, or a year ago? Annualize it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and absolutely, given a modestly stronger dollar, you know, the Fed, um, uh, the pace of increase, you know, or the, the, um, their um, balance sheet beginning to decline, the ECB not meeting target, uh, the Bank of Japan not meeting target, absolutely the rate of change has gone from a positive to a negative. But very quickly, the, um, the conversations turned around to the fact that it's a stock. So those three central banks combined have taken their balance sheet, I don't know the exact numbers, you know, four or five trillion to 10 or 12 trillion. So there's five, six trillion of securities sitting on three central bank balance sheets. They're never going to see the light of day. They'll be redeemed, the cash will come back, but the, the potential buyer, the insurance company, the asset manager that needs those securities cannot find those securities. And that's where it really comes down to, I think it's a stock argument. And to me, that's why we only ever had three and a quarter for the high for US, um, US 10 years. And that was on the basis that there's just so much demand out there and we find it hard to envisage a world that's going to generate 10-year yields much. Maybe it's three and a quarter, maybe 340, 350, somewhere in that 325, 350. Even with the Fed continuing to tighten is our high for uh, for US 10 years because there isn't enough stock out there. Now, ask me next week or you know six months from now whether it's a <laughs> stock or flow argument. I'll probably give you a different answer. But I think that's the right way is to observe both the rate of change but also the stock. Very quickly, one last uh, question, uh, because we are out of time, but an associated part of that story has been the strengthening US dollar. Yep. Um, the other side of that has been where uh, the Australian dollar has been has ended up weakened, not as much as a lot of other pairs, but uh, it has. So uh, where do you see the Australian dollar being? Because you've got a, a bit of a theory um, on this. Yeah, look, it's, uh, you know, whether we talked it when I was on last or not, um, I've kind of been running with a, what I call a sticky Aussie um, uh, theme for some time now. And that's really, there's two or three inputs into that. One is the improvement in the current account situation. So we've gone from an eight, eight, circa $80 billion, um, uh, current account deficit back 2015, 2016 to a $40 billion deficit. So the amount of funding that we, um, uh, that we need to um, build on a day-to-day -day basis is dwindling. Now, it doesn't feel that like that in the funding markets at the moment, but the big <laughs> macro driver is with 
you know, we've gone, we're now running the largest trade surplus, at least on a, a quarterly rolling sum basis that we've ever seen and with LNG exports coming on, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that, you know, that, that, that's a positive. Then it's the savings investment that sort of, or shifts in savings investment that really drives that. Um, we had a massive investment boom, uh, which was the resources boom. We've come off that. But essentially, we've carried on, um, whether it's privatizing, whether it's um, uh, leasing assets that were on the, um, on the state's balance sheet. So we've continued to attract significant equity and flow. And the equity markets have been very active. Uh, we've seen a pickup in terms of equity issuance as well. You issue equity, you tend to get the capital coming in. And if the currency is at the right level, it becomes very attractive as well. You know, a lot of people come to me from an offshore point of view and say, well, why is, this, why is ASX done as well as it's done in the last sort of couple of months? Because we've got a trade war and we've got everything else going on. Uh, my answer I to think that this is, is a really important point. Look yeah. at the level of the currency. Mm. Um, and I think it's made it attractive. So Australian equity outperforming, uh, Australian debt outperforming, it has done so. And that's really ultimately, that's what sort of needs to shift in a situation where your savings investment imbalance is changing, but you're attracting too much capital in. Because up until the end of last year, we were overfunding the current account deficit through equity inflow, which is, you know, essentially too much money coming in. So what has to happen is our yield curve to make if equity f is flowing in, something else has to give. Otherwise, you have an appreciating currency. What has to happen in that situation is our yield curve has to map itself well below the US yield curve to encourage debt capital to, to, to leave the country. And as long as that doesn't really happen, then it gives you a very sticky currency. So, you know, whether it's sticking my neck out and sort of trying to double up on a one good call um, uh, from last year, um, uh, you know, from an Aussie point of view, I think we continue to spend quite a lot of time around this 74 level. We've got it finishing the year at 74, and we got it modestly lower, 72 mid-year, 70 by the end of uh, next year. We're not really factoring in a um, significant trade war, and that kind of speaks to the point I made earlier on. We, I don't expect to see auto tariffs see the light of day, yeah, it, but if, if if that is the case, then you know forecasts will uh, will need to change. In the short term, I think the market probably is slightly short Aussie. I wouldn't be surprised if if I'm right, and the timeline for fresh significant um, uh, tariff developments are probably into um, uh, into September, given that it's summer markets maintaining you know, hedges and short positions over that period with low uh, volatility, especially we haven't mentioned the employment numbers, but, um, you know, given that employment number that we had, you know, you wouldn't be surprised. Which to is, see uh, so we're recording on Thursday and uh, the, the, the ABS data just um, just printed at uh, like an hour and a half ago and it was 50,000 uh, new jobs uh, last month uh, against 16 and a half expected. So a massive beat. And after a, a few months of softness in the labor market, it looks like maybe uh, it's, it's coming back to life. So, sorry. Yeah, so so with that as a backdrop, wouldn't be surprised to see short term, you know, the potential for um, Aussie a little bit higher. Uh, but, you know, the backdrop really is one of, this is a late cycle. I think we've really gone from, um, you know, synchronous global growth. It feels like late cycle growth. The prospects, um, you know, of divergence of uh, global growth through next year definitely rising. It's difficult to see Aussie doing particularly well in that environment. So, you know, continue to stick to that um, 72 mid-year, 70 end of next year.
You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest on this week's show, uh, taking us through what I thought was an absolutely fascinating uh, uh, walk through uh, what's happening in global trade. Robert Rennie, uh, head of global market strategy at Westpac. Rob, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Pleasure. Dave, it's been good. Been a fantastic chat. Really enjoyed it. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. The show is on iTunes under Devils and Details or your podcast platform of choice. The show is produced by Rick Salter. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. We're also on Twitter individually. That's me, Paul Colgan, Robert Rennie at Westpac, and David Scott from Business Insider. We'll catch you next time.